this morning focusing on the ascension, we talked about the way that Jesus Christ is the bringer of heaven and earth, and the bringer of earth to heaven. And now here in Revelation 21, we're just kind of jumping in, and this is, this is John's vision that he receives of the new heaven and the new earth. So listen then for the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the word of the Lord. We seem a little preoccupied with how the world's going to end. Zombie apocalypse, a new ice age, nuclear war, Mayan doom, which was kind of big a few years ago. I mean, apocalyptic movies and novels populate our imagination and our cineplexes and our cultural landscape. I mean, how often are we talking about The Walking Dead and zombies or the really bad movie back in 2012 about the end of the world titled 2012, which was about the Mayan doom thing? Or Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which is a brutal unpacking of what the world would look like when there's no hope. And then also the movie with Viggo Mortensen made about it, which was a pretty brutal movie to watch, though beautiful. What does the world look like without hope? How does the world end? We are fascinated as a culture with the end of the world. And in Revelation, when we come here, it's typically kind of seen as the Christian answer to that question, how does the world end? I mean, it comes at the end of scripture, it's prophecy, Many have read it as a puzzle to figure out, right? There's pieces that we just need to fit together and then we'll get the image of what the end looks like. We just have to kind of piece it together just a little bit better and the picture will become clear. It's full of clues of how the world will end and our role in it and how we can be safe at the end of all things. When I was younger, actually, reading Revelation was kind of like watching a horror movie, right? It had monsters and gore and blood and scary things in the corner of the scenes. It was terrifying to read. And after reading it, I either couldn't sleep at night or I would sleep and I'd hold my Bible and I'd have really bad nightmares. <laughs> Revelation to a kid? I mean, Revelation is some scary stuff. I don't know if you guys have read it recently, but there's some incredible images and strong stuff going in there that <clears throat> can be a little, just more than a little frightening. 
And, and for me, there's that image of a lake of fire in Revelation. And I was always just perplexed and puzzled by that, the lake of fire, because I was told that's where all the bad people will go and burn. That's hell. And so for me, I did not want to go there. Right? Revelation made me certain I did not want to go there. And so I would pray over and over and over again, holding my Bible, Jesus come into my heart, just in case it didn't take before, because I know I've said this prayer before, but I really, really, really mean it now, I don't want to go to hell. You squint your eyes really tight, because that's what kids do, and they really mean something in their prayers. My younger self, the, the, the image of Christ that I was working with when I prayed that prayer, I, I had two images of who Jesus was. There's the flannel graph Jesus, which if you remember back in the day, Bible stories in Sunday school were all with the flannel graph. I still had those. I remember Peter and Jesus being moved along the little green bit of grass and the blue sky and the flannel being moved. I remember that. So I had flannel graph Jesus in my mind. And flannel graph Jesus was all soft and felty and he liked to hang out with kids like me. That was the Jesus who said, let the children come to me. Flannel graph Jesus. And then there was a second Jesus who I referred to as Revelation Jesus. That Jesus was the one that was in the painting that hung in my pastor's study. And that Jesus came straight out of Revelation 19. That was a Jesus who, when you stared at the, the portrait, the painting, it was, quite, it was quite large. And for a little kid, it was about like two feet by three feet. It was, it was a big thing for a little kid to see. And this Jesus was coming right at you, charging with flowing white hair, a whole host of white men on white horses behind him with a sword and blood dripping from his ropes. That was Revelation Jesus. That was the Jesus that scared me. And I prayed Jesus come into my heart. I really needed to flannel graph Jesus. And while I prayed, please don't send me to hell, was to Revelation 19 Jesus, the scary one. Because I grew up in a tradition that interpreted Revelation in a very particular way. Revelation was interpreted as is that puzzle, that prophecy, that you have to click it together in order to understand how the world is going to end. Because you're going to be raptured, so you have to figure out the picture of Revelation so you don't get left behind because scary Jesus is coming for you. So make sure you really mean it because flannel graph Jesus is going to save you. But that scary Jesus is coming. So get your stuff together. I mean, Revelation was read as a clue book about the end of the world, who the Antichrist is and is going to be, and also how the Middle East fit into everything. So every little snippet of news about the Middle East was trying to fit into some way into, Jesus is coming back right now, get your stuff together. Scary Jesus, remember him? He's coming. You don't want to get left behind. Revelation was terrifying. But then, heaven wasn't all that enticing either, to be really honest. Sitting around on clouds, playing a harp, singing endless worship songs, being on my best church behavior. To a kid, this is not the idea of fun. When you say you're going to go to heaven and that's what they think, not really selling it really well to them. So I prayed with that image of heaven in my mind. I, I, remember as a kid praying, okay, Jesus, don't get me wrong, I want to go to heaven, just not yet. Let me live a little. I didn't want to get there too soon, because I had it figured out that I wanted to live as long as possible, and then I'd go to church for a really, really, really long time. 
That's a kid's understanding of the end of the world taught by a church through the lens of revelation in a very particular way. And when I look back on that, look back on how that formed and shaped my faith, I saw nothing but fear all the way down, right? Fear of hell, fear of not being good enough to get out of hell, not like fire. Also fear of heaven, fear of a boring, long eternity that awaited me on the other side of death. But it was better than the other place, so, well, okay. Fear. Fear, 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 fear. To my young imagination, Revelation was a book of blood and wrath, violence and judgment, and hellfire. But John, John, the guy who received and wrote the visions here in Revelation, he didn't record these visions to scare a 10-year-old 2,000 years after he lived, or to present a puzzle piece for people to kind of toss over and wonder about and unpack and play with. And it wasn't, wasn't a future to decipher, it was a present to hope in. Because John was a pastor. We often forget that this is a vision given to John. He, he was a pastor, but he wasn't just any pastor, he was a pastor to a persecuted church. A few decades after the resurrection of Jesus, the church was being squashed by Roman emperors. They were thrown into the Colosseum, they were torn apart by lions for the entertainment of crowds. And John himself was actually exiled, imprisoned on an island in the middle of the sea. And the only reason that he was exiled and not killed was because, well, he'd be made a martyr and that would inspire other people to follow Jesus Christ, so we can't have that. So he was put in exile. So here's John, a pastor, separated from his congregation, praying for them, holding them in prayer, wondering what word to give to them. He's not wondering how the world's going to end. He's not wondering, you know, gee whiz, I wish I could write a mind bender for people living a few centuries after me. John needed a word of hope for his suffering people. That's the need that John had coming into Revelation. He was asking questions like, how do I preach hope to my people? How do I encourage them in the face of grave difficulty? How do I give them strength to continue on? For the preachers that I had growing up, for that particular way of reading Revelation, the hope that Revelation held out to John, to this pastor, it was nothing more than an escape hatch. Yes, you're being persecuted. Yes, you're experiencing hell on earth. But don't worry, there's life after death. You'll escape this, and don't worry, it'll just be a bad memory. Is that kind of hope enough? Does that kind of hope satisfy? Is that the kind of hope that Pastor John was looking for for his people? Brian this morning pointed out, he pointed to a song to talk about the ways in which we, we think of heaven and earth. And, and I want to do the same thing, actually. In our, in our hymns, and our worship songs, you can hear some of this kind of escape hatch heaven thinking, right? When we sing How Great Thou Art, we sing the line, When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Or away in the manger when Christmas time comes, You'll fit us for heaven to live with him there. 
or Amazing Grace, which is one of my favorites, but I can never quite bring myself to sing the line, when the earth shall dissolve like snow. Because songs like this and many others reinforce the idea that heaven is our home, our final destination, while this, this earth, this creation, just gets put in the junk pile in the back, and we float away to our real home. Maria Shriver, I don't know if you guys saw this book when it came out, but Maria Shriver, famously married to Arnold Schwarzenegger before they were divorced, wrote a children's book, of all things, called What's Heaven? It's a simple book. It's got a line a page, so you flip through it really fast. It has very nice illustrations. What's Heaven? This is how it begins. Heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. And at night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. And if you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. And when your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. And it continues in that way for the rest of the book. But is that really what we find? at the end of the story. Is our story of what happens to this world, our answer to how the world ends, is it really about this world that we get an escape hatch, an escape plan from a doomed planet, that this ship riddled by sin and pain and death is going down and we hold a one-way ticket out of here? Is that a story that John could preach to his persecuted brothers and sisters in their time of trouble? Is that a story of hope for us even in our own lives? Does that kind of hope satisfy? This last vision of John here in 21, it comes on the heels of victory. The preceding chapters have all been about Jesus defeating sin and death and Satan in some really glorious, incredible ways. And the victory begun in this resurrection comes to its ultimate fulfillment. And here, at the end of the story, the world is, is wiped clean of all that destruction and pain. And the whole host of angels and elders that we were called to worship with fall down in worship and shout with a sound like thunder, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. War is over. The enemy is defeated. All heaven is broken out in a loud rendition of the Hallelujah Chorus, and we all live happily ever after on our designated cloud with our little harp. Is that the story? Not quite. Because at that moment, John, needing a word of hope for his people, looks up and sees his last vision here in 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and God will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And with this vision of heaven coming down to earth, of God living once and for all with his people, John the pastor in need of a good word of hope 
hears the most hope-filled words he could possibly imagine. Look, I am making all things new. Which is not saying I'm scrapping the old and starting from scratch. Or look, I'm making all new things. I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. So Pastor John, in prison, struggling to help his persecuted brothers and sisters with friends killed by Roman soldiers with the whole power of Rome working against him, exiled in a cave in the middle of the sea, receives a vision of hope. Not an escape hatch, but a rescue mission. Not a vision of a one-way ticket to heaven, but a promise of renewal, restoration, redemption of all things. All things. The promise that none of his suffering, his pain, his loss, his sacrifice, his hard work will be in vain. But that all will be taken up into God's rescue mission to redeem the world he created. And all that John, all that his people, his brothers and sisters experienced, all that they loved and all that they suffered, would not be in vain. Look, look, I am making all things new. So how does the world end? How does the world end? The world doesn't end in fire and destruction with a few chosen escaping to a disembodied heaven. It's not the case. But the world also doesn't end with God making a whole new world from scratch but making the whole world new. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Not to junk it all in the end, but to redeem it, to renew it, to rescue it. So what I love is that the same God who created the world in the first place every atom and mountain, every daisy and sycamore, every ocean and every creek is the same God who sent his son to redeem every atom and mountain, every daisy and sycamore, every ocean and creek. Not to condemn the world, but to save it through his sacrifice on a cross and from his resurrection from the grave. Eugene Peterson succinctly puts it this way. He says, the sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The end of the story matches the beginning of the story. And if the end of the story is a renewal of all things, not the destruction of this world, what does that mean for how we live now? What does that mean for us? The end of all things. If heaven comes down to earth, just like Brian was talking about this morning, rather than us fleeing to the clouds, bringing the heavenly and the earthly together, what does that mean for the way we live? Similar to what Brian preached this morning, we get to join in God's rescue mission. We get to join in the mission. We get to work on this divine renewal project that started now and will come to fulfillment and fruition at the end of all things. We get to get our hands dirty. We get to dig in and help out. And I can't think of anything, anybody who sums this up more than Abraham Kuyper, that good old reformed theologian, with this very famous quote that says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence 
over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in all of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, mine. Not one square inch that does not belong to our risen and ascended Lord, not one square inch that is beyond the reach of his redemption, of his renewal, of his rescue mission, not one square inch that does not matter from here to eternity. Not one. All things, all things, every little square inch of this creation and of our lives. Every square inch of Kitchener, of Waterloo, of Cambridge, of New Hamburg, of Ayr, every square inch of our relationships, every square inch of our work life and our leisure time, every square inch of our existence in the world we live in. Mine, mine. Every square inch, then, is a place to join in the rescue mission of God an opportunity to practice renewal or to practice resurrection like we talked about last week. Going back to Eugene Peterson, he describes it this way. He says, we enter heaven. I love this quote. We enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place in which God has placed us. That's good. I'm going to read that one more time because it's good. We enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place in which God has placed us. And that's when we see glimpses here and now of the moment when heaven will come down and Jesus will declare, look, look around. I am making all things new, which is our dearest hope, which is a kingdom hope. And that, that's the kind of hope that can satisfy. It doesn't scare us, but invites us into the good work of God's rescue mission for the world that he loves. Which is the end of the story. But which also isn't an end at all, really, if you think about it. It's the beginning of everything, of all things, of every square inch, renewed and redeemed. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Creator of heaven and earth, we give you thanks for every square inch of your creation. We give you thanks for the promise in your Son, our Redeemer and King, who says, look, I am making all things new. We hold on to this promise through the hard bits of our life, through the wounds that we see in our own world, and we hold on to your promise that you will make all things new, that nothing is in vain, that you take everything up together and redeem it our lives, our world. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for this vision of the end of all things in which we see you, our God, with, our, with your people together in the new city, heaven and earth, coming together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.